there, good day everyone, and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast, broadcast from 3CR, your only radio left. Susanna here with you. So, welcome to regular listeners, and indeed to anyone who has just tuned in. Good on you. Once again, we're being inundated with royalist propaganda. No matter how we try, we can't avoid the topic. Will you make a quiche tomorrow? The new monarch might well reflect that Charles is an unlucky name for a king. After all, it ended very badly for his namesake. The year was 1649 and King Charles I was led on to a scaffold in Whitehall. His head was chopped off, and then souvenir hunters gathered round to dip their handkerchiefs in his blood and collect pieces of his royal hair. Ah, grisly or what? The beheading was the culmination of nine years of revolution against the old feudal order represented by Charles. Parliament's court found Charles to be a tyrant, traitor, murderer and public enemy. But it was a revolution by thousands of ordinary people that sealed the fate of King Charles I. Let's hope that's not the last revolution. In Britain and worldwide, millions of ordinary people won't celebrate the coronation of Charles III but they will remember a legacy of racism, colonialism and straight up and down old-fashioned copper-bottomed inequality. We should take a moment to look at the last monarch, our last monarch, the Queen of Australia. She was described as dedicating her life to duty. The only thing Elizabeth II was ever dedicated to was serving her class it would be more appropriate to describe her as a scrounger. Still, the word parasite also springs to mind. She was born into scrounging in April of 1926, and there seemed little chance that she would become a monarch as she was third in line behind her father's older brother and her father. But this all changed when her uncle, Edward VIII, a Nazi sympathiser, abdicated and married Wallace Simpson, another Nazi sympathiser. While many a rich scrounger liked the Nazis in the 1930s, Edward and Simpson put their enthusiasm against the interest of the bosses who ran the British Empire. And they had to go. But associating or even dressing up as a Nazi for the Windsors isn't much of an issue. And those fascist salutes weren't much of an issue either. When the footage of the young Elizabeth and her family doing Nazi salutes was released, the palace cried their personal footage had been exploited. 
And there was no better man to explain this than Boris Johnson. The two little girls are plainly fooling around, and so is their mother. And so probably is their Uncle Edward, that probably was there for a reason. Uncle Edward, or King Edward VIII, was a friend of Adolf Hitler. The story of Edward and Wallace Simpson is often sold as a heartwarming romance. The best man at their wedding was Fruity Metcalf, who had been photographed in fascist regalia at a British Union of Fascist dinner. Sort of like Dear Prince Harry, but with feeling. The bride's closest friend was Diana Mosley, who married the British Union of Fascist founder Oswald Mosley at Joseph Goebbels' home with Hitler as guest of honour. Oh, and I mustn't forget to mention the Queen Mother. The Queen Mother once sent a copy of Hitler's book Mein Kampf to a friend, saying even a skip through gives you a good idea of his obvious sincerity. It was put that she clearly had some reservations about Jews in her old-fashioned English way. Ah, oh dear. All four of Prince Philip's eldest sisters were married to various posh Nazis in the 1930s. One of the Queen's German cousins had run a concentration camp for which he later stood trial as a war criminal. Plainly, the photograph of the little royal family giving their Nazi salutes was just fooling around. Oh well, people don't forget these things. And if you don't know the basic history of the royal family, well, you could forget yourself and maybe raise a glass of Blanc Sec to Charlie, of the unfortunate name. Make yourself a quiche and forget about the very sordid history of this family. But let's get down to the coronation. When Elizabeth was crowned, only eight years had passed since the end of the Second World War and Britain was bankrupt. Major cities still remained in ruins and certain food items were still rationed. With Britain in the grip of austerity, the ruling class thought a coronation was an excellent opportunity to ramp up nationalist feelings and create a sense of shared unity. No expense was spared on that day. With the lavish ceremony estimated to have cost around £1.6 million in 1953. Now that's £47 million in today's money. After the coronation ceremony, the elites headed off to Buckingham Palace where they ate a lovely dinner of coronation chicken quiche, canapes, shellfish mousse and tortoise soup. For millions of ordinary people who had lost loved ones during the war and were now living in desperate poverty, the day's excess must have felt like a slap in the face.
scandal has plagued the children of the Queen for messy divorces and those dreadful racist comments to a well-documented friendship with millionaire child rapist Jeffrey Epstein. But for all their scumminess, they've been awarded a life of luxury. Every lavish wedding of the Queen's children or grandchildren has always led to a bill of tens of millions of pounds. Well, for example, Charles and Diana's wedding alone cost the taxpayer over £80 million. The royal family owns 20 properties, ranging from the thousand-room Windsor Castle to the more modest 20-room Kensington Palace. Those in power would like us to believe that the royal family have been met with love and adoration wherever they go. That's simply not true. In the last few years, there was a distinctive attempt to present the royals as being just like ordinary people. You know, the homely royals. After Princess Diana's death, tensions between being ordinary and being royal came to a head and there was this perceived feeling that the royals had it in for her because she wasn't posh enough. And today we've got Meghan and the former Nazi cosplayer Harry, although he stopped dressing up in those Nazi uniforms these days, or at least we don't see him in them. The monarchy, let's face it, is in parasitic, opulent and slow decline. The royal family thought they'd made it out alive following their scrap with Harry and Meghan. Unluckily for them, Prince Andrew was stepped in to plunge them back into chaos. Andrew, the late Queen's favourite son, wants to overturn a settlement he paid to Virginia Guifra. The prince settled a case last February after a six-month legal battle for an undisclosed sum estimated to be up to 9.6 million English pounds. Now he says he didn't mean it. He shouldn't have paid the money. He wants an apology and he wants to be welcomed back into royal life. Oh, there you go, Andrew. Andrew has previously said he has no recollection of meeting the young woman, Jifra, but there are so many obscurities in his recollections, from supposed excursions to pizza parlours to not being able to sweat, and the prince still defends his friendship with Epstein. Andrew's attempts to wheedle himself out of disgrace are set to clash with his brother's coronation. As millions are wasted on this event, don't forget the corruption, the scandal and the bigotry that ensnares this family. Oh, well, who among us can say we have a perfect family? The point is, really, that this royal family is pointless to us. The year is 2023. Surely now we can look at becoming a republic. From many lands across the sea A dream to live in peace Joining those already here To work and build our dreams 
the federal government has already flagged its intention to hold a referendum on a republic if elected for a second term. We even have an assistant minister for the republic in the person of Matt Thistlewaite. Supporters of Australia becoming a republic have long acknowledged that any change was unlikely while Queen Elizabeth remained as head of state. Well, she's not anymore, is she? But are the Australian voters ready to abandon the monarchy more than 20 years after the failed 99 referendum? And if we did part ways with the monarchy, what would actually change here at home? What does a head of state actually do? Do we need one? Well, every country has someone in an executive power role, whether it's a monarch, a non-executive president, which is a largely ceremonial leader, as in Germany and in Ireland, or an executive president who is also head of government, like in South Africa or USA. In some rare instances, the role is executed in a collective way to a committee where several people share the executive power responsibilities, such as in Switzerland and in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Australia, just like the United Kingdom, is a constitutional monarchy, which means we are a parliamentary democracy with an inherited, rather than elected, an inherited head of state, a monarch, who is supposed to perform a mainly symbolic role. So the King of Australia, Charles III, is our head of state, but his executive powers are exercised by a local representative, the Governor-General. Republicans in Australia want to replace the Governor-General with a non-executive president rather than continue to have our rule of law vested in a foreign royal family. But then again, so many of us forged our views about a republic in the dreadful times of 1975, the constitutional crisis, the dismissal, when Governor-General John Kerr used his authority as the Queen's representative to dismiss our elected government. There were suspicions back then, and still are, that Buckingham Palace had instructed the removal of Gough Whitlam's government, and that unprecedented move really showed dangers for the future of our political system and the control that we had in choosing our government. Whether it's an inherited role or an elected role, there seems to be a need for someone in such a position, but someone above politics. There's no reason why Australia couldn't remain part of the Commonwealth, given that most of the former monarchies, such as India and Pakistan, are still members. Even some countries, such as Mozambique and Rwanda, that were never colonised by the British, have joined the Commonwealth. What would the process be to become a republic? Well, in order for a republic to become a reality in Australia, the constitution would have to be amended, something that can only be done by referendum. To succeed, a referendum must be approved by a majority of electors and by a majority of states. Sounds simple enough, yes, except that Australian voters have a long history of rejecting referendums. Since 1901, there have been 44 proposals put forward, 
although only 19 actually went to the polls, but only eight of these proposals were approved by voters. The highest support at a national referendum was the landmarked 1967 proposal on Indigenous rights, which enjoyed more than 90% support from the voters. The last successful referendums to let electors in territories vote in constitutional referendums and to establish 70 as a retirement age for federal court judges and, importantly, to ensure a casual vacancy in the Senate would be filled by a person of the same political party. And they were carried in 1977. So, what happened at the 1999 referendum? The first and only time we had a referendum on the Republic question. This was after years of debate initiated by Paul Keating. Now, John Howard, despite opposing the idea of a republic, formally confirmed his government's intention to proceed with the Constitutional Convention held in 1998 to consider various proposals and a preferred model, both for public and parliamentary scrutiny. And then the question was put to the voters in a referendum. Australians were asked whether they wanted to replace the Queen with a president appointed by a two-thirds majority of the federal government. This is based on a minimalist model, and it would have made the Governor-General the President of Australia and cut legal ties to Britain. But it was the disagreement around this model that led to the referendum's defeat, with just under 55% voting no and just over 45% voting yes. One of the major barriers in 1999 was that a lot of people were saying, I'm happy to be a republic after the Queen goes. So, listener, the obvious slogan for a new marketing campaign for a republic would be, it's time. <laughs> yes, remember that, it's time.
oh gosh, that took me back those heady days back in the early 70s before the crashing disappointments and the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. So what would we want of an Australian Republic? A Republic must be founded on tolerance, inclusivity and justice. It also must be compassionate. It must seek to empathise with people who are suffering. It must offer healing through action to those who have been denied. And it must seek out practical forms of action that alleviate suffering. And this final approach means we can't rest on our national laurels thinking only of our citizens. Not when there's so much hardship in our global neighbourhood. Republics, of course, come and go. And you only need a brief lesson in French history to see the pitfalls of thinking that a republic can solve all issues. And if our republic is to resonate emotionally, then we need to know that the language we use to name who we are expresses our feelings as well. And this, then, is where we come to the historical legacy of invasion and of the white Australia policy, which linger today no matter what anyone tells you. Australia, as an idea, is founded on terra nullius and the exclusion of non-white people. And it's time to rectify that. And we can do that by having different people, Indigenous people, new immigrants at the table. It's up to them, as it is up to us, to help determine our future government. By opening out our idea of democracy, we can feel our way towards a republic that matters. And we can work towards not just a republic, but a just republic. 3CR. And I'll finish here, leaving you with some thoughts on the Republic. Hopefully, it's in our hands, listener. The time has come, I believe. And to round it up, here's our national anthem with the new lyrics by Judith Durham, sung here by Judith and Kutcher Edwards. And I'll see you next week. Same time, same place. And until then, cheerio and ciao from Left After Breakfast.
Yeah.